This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest today is Courtney Boyd Myers, the co-founder and CEO of Akua, a modern brand on a mission to become a household name for sustainable sea greens-based foods. In April 2019, Akua launched its first product, Kelp Jerky, a high-protein, soy-free snack which won a spot on Time Magazine's Inventions of the Year list. When she's not hustling sea vegetables, Courtney is a global community director at Summit, a community and events company that brings together innovators and creatives for beautiful, immersive, and life-changing events. This is Courtney Boyd-Myers and the Akua Story. Boyd Myers from Akua. Thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to ask you a question that you probably find super annoying. <laughs> um, is kelp the new kale? <laughs> is kelp the new kale? So when anyone asks me this question, I asked them in 2012, so seven years ago, do you know who the world's biggest buyer of kale was? Don't. <laughs> It was Pizza Hut because they used to use kale as decoration in their salad bars. So when we look at the rise of how fast kale came to the market, um, and there was actually a woman behind this PR machine and an association pushing it forward too, I think it just gives a lot of possibility to our little humble kelp algae uh, and how it may also rise. Very smart answer. So um, I have been fascinated by uh, the potential with, with sea vegetables. I think calling them seaweed sometimes uh, make them sound like something we shouldn't be consuming. Um, but we w- there's there's so much environmental potential for kelp, and it is such a unexplored sort of a food group in especially in the West. Of course, we know in Asia this is that that's where the whole sea vegetables, ocean vegetable market exists, and uh, even most of the sea vegetables you probably eat in the U.S. are imported, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. 
So about ninety eight percent. Well, so yeah, that's that's ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so let's start with um, with why and how you got interested in kelp to begin with. Um, and then, of course, we'll get into your background and, and the work you're doing now. Sure. So another way that I like to describe seaweeds is sea greens. Uh, and I love ocean vegetables. Very cool. And, you know, recently we've made a lot of jokes about being seaweed dealers because now, like, weed's really cool again. Um, so how I got into kelp. Uh, about three years ago, actually, in 2016, April, I went out to visit my first kelp farm in Connecticut where I grew up with a childhood friend. Uh, so a lot of people are like, how did you get into kelp? It was through a friend. There's, you know, not everyone can have a friend who starts kelp farms. I was really lucky. <laughs> uh, my friend Brendan had helped start a nonprofit called Green Wave. And Green Wave exists essentially to help the coastal economies of New England uh, to help their fishermen learn how to ocean farm as an alternative revenue stream. A lot of these fishermen are underemployed or unemployed. Uh, which is for many reasons, one of which is the catch system that a lot of the big fishing companies have bought up the rights to f- to you know fish a certain number of fish, and the smaller fishermen are you know kind of out of business. So he would say, "Look, you've got ropes, you've got buoys. A lot of you have the license to farm oysters, so it's similar in the sense of getting a license to farm kelp." Um, and he would you know teach people how to build these farms, how to get the pregnant mama kelp, how to get the spores out of her, how to plant those in the farm, how to grow and how to harvest. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. I'm a, I'm a true New Englander. I grew up on the, you know, the beaches of Connecticut and loved that economic story. And then I learned the environmental story, which I'm sure we'll dive into more. But in brief, the kelp as it's growing is sequestering carbon and nitrogen from the seas at about 20 times the rate of a land-based plant. Uh, it also grows in the water without fresh water, dry land, fertilizer, or feed, which is incredible because I don't think there's anything you've eaten or drank today you can say the same thing about. And then I learned about all the health benefits of eating seaweeds, especially kelp, and thought, wow, this is a real triple threat here. How do we get more people eating kelp? Yeah, I mean, it's a zero input crop, which is almost like the first time I read that, I, I I couldn't believe, like, why aren't we doing more with it? Is something wrong with kelp? Is it just so <laughs> disgusting that no one wants to eat it? Um, and it's not the case. And I think um, the more you dive into the both the environmental impacts um, and the benefits of, of kelp farming to the health impacts plus the economic impacts, um, we all know, and we've discussed a lot about this. We talk a lot about this on the podcast, which is um, we our population is growing fast. We're going to be about 10 billion by the year 2050. Uh, by most estimates, we're going to have to produce more food in the next 30, 40 years than we have in the last 10,000 years combined. This is one easy way to help. It's not going to be the only solution, but it needs to be part of the solution if we start we start sourcing our food from more sustainable sources like mm-hmm. um, kelp farms, for example, we may have a shot of, of really being able to feed the world in a sustainable way. So to me, that's just a, it's such a compelling reason to dive deeper into this, pun intended. Yep. Even, uh, even, if, um, even if it's going to be a bit of a hard sort of road ahead. And so why is it that kelp farming and, and sea greens in general have not 
picked up in in the US. I mean, sushi has risen, kale has now become a staple. Um, what's been, why is it so slow and why are we still so reliant on imports? Mm. Well, in, in Asia, because they eat it more, they've also been farming it for thousands of years. It's such a beautiful part of their culture. Um, truthfully, I, I don't know why they started before we do. Um, that's not in that book, Sapiens, and I'm surprised, <laughs> but it would be a, a cool book on its own. Um, not just in Asia, but also cultures in Ireland, uh, for example, um, I'd say Norway. They've also been eating seaweeds for, you know, hundreds of years since, you know, the Vikings. Mm. And I think in the U.S., uh, you know, we've we've sort of looked at, at meat as, as really important and... Um, corn being kind of like that basic American crop, uh, wheat. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it's just starting. And I think that there's something to be said for the rise of trends like the East meets the West in wellness. So yoga, great example. Mm-hmm. I know a major kind of Eastern philosophy and approach to wellness has now proliferated the U.S., um, I would say superfood mushrooms are having their time in the spotlight. I worked with Four Sigmatic for about a year, loved them, all about that chaga, reishi, cordyceps, and lion's mane, and mm-hmm. teaching people that you could eat functional mushrooms to not trip, but to actually you know, help prevent real diseases like cancer and, and brain tumors and skin diseases. Uh, I think seaweed's kind of going to be next in that. What are they eating in the eastern con- – uh, sorry – Eastern continent to kind of keep their, you know, macrobiotic diet. You look at that. Mm -hmm. You think about like real natural sources of energy that are plant-based that have lots of nutrients because they're not grown in soil that's depleted. Um, So I I think sea greens is going to have its moment for all those reasons. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the, and you mentioned what's happening. Um, I think we're seeing that in the Northeast with, um, with some fishermen who are just having trouble um, sort of staying financially viable in that business, this is a great opportunity for them to supplement their uh, their income, especially because I think a lot of sea greens do grow during the winter months um, when they don't when they possibly will not be making that much money. And secondly, I think as you know, as we destroy our oceans and we overfish our oceans, I mean. Some estimates I read, there's going to be more plastic in the oceans by 2050 than fish. Mm-hmm. And there won't be, some say there won't be any wild fish in the ocean by 2050 if you keep overfishing. So, you know, we, you can't just leapfrog into a future where suddenly people um, are eating something else and the journey has to begin now. Uh, and it sounds like Green Wave is doing some really interesting work. I've looked at their 3D models for, yep. uh, for kelp farming and... It just makes so much sense. I think one last question on the on the specifics around um, just general sea greens and kelp farming is uh, is this done? So this is done in the ocean. So this isn't um, so this isn't in freshwater, obviously, as you said earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, are there any concerns around toxicity? Because that's a big issue with seafood these days. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so one of the most regulated. Uh, areas of aquaculture and, and agriculture combined is in the shellfish industry because the shellfish are natural filters. And so where we grow our kelp, 
it's all in those third-party trialed and tested waters. So we're growing our kelp in Maine, super clean water. Maine has, and, and Alaska as well, has a huge kelp farming industry. Those are the two most progressive states in the U.S., those um, states make so much money and in relation to their other industries off of the oceans that protecting it and keeping it clean is so important to them. Um, we farm a little bit, too, in Rhode Island. And then, you know, I think as we look north, too, like the Canadian waters are all like pretty prime. But, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to eat kelp that was grown in dirty water. You could use other you use that kelp for other things um, because it is filtering it you could use it for fertilizers um, you could potentially even use it for animal feed but it, it wouldn't be like food human safe yeah and then some uses of kelp i've even read could be used as as fuel as possible yeah. jet fuel down the line i don't know if anyone's actually doing that yet they, they but. are so um DARPA just awarded the Woods Hole Institute about a $6 million grant, which when it comes to government grants is pretty small. But uh, a lot of people are, ExxonMobil is also putting a lot of money into research as kelp as a biofuel. As is explained to me at, um, at Woods Hole, what's so important about kelp for food industries right now, because the kelp farm uh, supply chain is so small, the prices are really high, and really the only kind of output for that type of price is food. And once prices can be driven down significantly, and we're talking not 10, but maybe 20 years, then kelp as a biofuel becomes like, you know, reasonably priced for us to use. Mm, it's so fascinating. Um, of course, I don't want to use up this entire episode to discuss my interest and curiosity. Happy to. <laughs> kelp farming, but um, in some ways we are, because um, I want to get to, you know, how you, how that initial interest in sea greens and kelp farming uh, led to your decision to launch a company in the food space. Uh, but before we get to that point and, and why you chose the you chose to focus on, on the products and the brand that you are working on right now, uh, a bit about your background. I know you started off in journalism. It's a bit of an unusual path towards food entrepreneurship, but you'll be surprised. I mean, <laughs> mostly people that don't have a traditional food industry background and, and they're able to do really amazing things. Yeah. I mean, I think we've made so many great mistakes as a, as a first-time food company founders that if we had had that background, we, we might have been moving faster and leapfrogged over. But uh, yes, journalism was my first role out of school. And I kind of had this very romantic idea that I would move to New York City and become this writer. And um, it was 2008. And I was a financial journalist at Forbes magazine, and I got assigned um, Bernie Madoff as my beat. <laughs> and it was, like, really, really depressing, tracking, like, oh, where all the money had gone and call. And I was a jun junior, junior reporter, so I was calling, like, grandmas to try to figure out, like, you know, what had happened, in, you know, in grandmas in Florida. And uh, and so I asked my editor, I said, look, man, I really need to write about something more positive. I'm losing it. And he was like, okay, cool. Well, there's these new things called slideshows that are, uh, that are you know, hot. And you should do a slideshow called, like, the, you know, 21 robots to buy this Christmas for your home. And so being a Forbes journalist, like, I actually got, like, 20 robots sent to my East Village apartment that I shared with my, my two girlfriends. And we had these, like, wicked robot Christmas parties. And, um, like, the Roomba was one of them. And so I wrote this slideshow. And that was kind of my... Um, my entry into technology and writing about 
technology and AI and startups. and Yeah, and you wrote about Instagram. I actually think I may have read some of your articles. I used to work in, so this is probably 2008, obviously, around that time. Yeah. Um, I worked in the tech industry at that time and would no follow way. every new thing that was happening. Uh, I was the first journalist to write about Instagram. Oh, really? Okay. I'm yeah. pretty sure I read all your <laughs> stuff in the beginning. I followed that journey, go from like, wait, what's this new thing? Oh, my God. They yeah. just sold for how much? Insane. <laughs> I mean, Kevin Systrom reached out on, on Facebook and he said, hey, I really like your profile photo. I saw you that you use this app called Hipstamatic. <laughs> and I said, yeah. He's like, well, you should check out my app called Instagram. <laughs> and it really was just like a filtered app, right, yeah. um, to filter your photos and share them. And so I just thought it was cool and I thought he was sweet. And I wrote about everything, every single thing. Like, And there got to a point where Kevin wasn't messaging me on face- or Facebook anymore. He had a PR team and, <laughs> um, you know, I wrote about API changes and then the, you know, the exit. Wow. So was it during your time in, um, in journalism in the tech industry that you started to um – Um, were the seeds planted for your potential entry into entrepreneurship? Because you're writing about all these amazing people building billion-dollar companies and doing really interesting and exciting stuff. Is that where you got the interest in entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think I was really interested on what was on the other side. And so I also... um, fell in love with an English guy at the time. He's he's no longer in my life. And uh, General Assembly was mm-hmm. was moving to London. And so I, I begged uh, my friend, who's the founder, Matt Brimer, to hire me and send me to London. And so, you know, setting up someone else's startup in a foreign country when you're a two-person team was was very entrepreneurial. Um, and it was, it was very hard. But we, yeah, we set up that school um, and I worked there for a couple of years started an agency where I was helping other U.S. companies enter the U.K. market because I was having a lot of fun with that, just adding, you know, some U's here and there. And instead of saying Z, saying Z, it was super easy. (laughs) Um, And then I joined Summit. So I came back to the U.S. and kind of was again in this position at Summit where I was um, overseeing invitations for our event and interviewing candidates and being around entrepreneurs all the time. And it was there that I met all these health and wellness entrepreneurs. Mm. And so then, again, this is 2014. You know, there's so much money being poured into meditation and health and wellness. And you've seen the, you know, all the smoothie bloggers come up on Instagram. And and I thought, okay, maybe I'll be a smoothie blogger. No, I'm kidding. Um, but <laughs> I said, well, I want to start a business in health and wellness. And, you know, we, we did this huge business plan, my friend Leon, and um, it was basically Thrive Market but we couldn't get the numbers to work. And then Thrive Market launched with the subscription and the discounts, and we're like, oh, that's how they got the numbers to work. So can that. And then when I was doing all this research and and had gotten into that business idea, I realized that what creates health and wellness is food and and the type of food we're putting in the body and the food's relation to the environment. And it was then that I went out to the kelp farm and thought, you know, there's definitely a business here. I guess what you're trying to do, and and please correct me if I've completely got this wrong, is that once you've once you figured out there was this power in kelp farming, environmentally, economically, from a health standpoint, what we needed then was to create a market around that, exactly, a consumer market around that. Is that when you started brainstorming ideas, and and how did that lead to the jerky idea? <laughs> um, because yeah, you could have done many different things, I'm sure, with kelp. Um, so I'd like to walk and through we that thought process, which is which is what you'll get it to too. Yeah, so we uh, we were talking to Greenwave, and 
I, I said, you know, what do you really need? Because I was I was helping them with um, like private fundraising, and I organized a bike ride. And uh, I said, look, guys, we're going to bike from Connecticut to Cape Cod. It's 300 miles along the shoreline, and we're going to visit kelp farms, and we're going to raise money for these ocean farmers. And uh, it was, like, insane that we did this and that no one got hurt. There were about, like, 15, 16 people that all signed up. I got, like, all these snack brands to, like, donate snacks. And, you know, we had a van, and there was, like, a bike mechanic from REI that came for free and helped us. And we were, like, biking on highways and stuff. It was, like, really (laughs) dangerous. Um, But And, you know, we raised, like, 25 grand in a weekend doing this and, and created some real friendships. And so I then said, you know, what do you really need to, like, kick this off? I really believe in the future of this uh, industry. And he said, we need your help creating a consumer market for kelp. And because they had been selling into restaurants mostly, and and that's not going to move the needle on a large scale. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting these five-pound bags of frozen kelp, and I'd literally be, like, running around New York City, like, delivering them to food scientists and chef friends and, like, shipping them out to San Francisco to friends and being like, what can you make with this? And most of my friends were just, like, making salads or pastas. Um, And we were working with a friend in New York who is, like, a very famous meat jerky maker. And we thought, well, could you make kelp jerky? And he's, like, this kooky guy. And he's like, of course I can make kelp jerky. And um, and he was the one that came up with the first recipe for us. And uh, and that was, I guess, like, end of 2016 into 2017. Yeah. And, you know, is it so... Jerky, I've been seems to have been having a moment in the last few years, a resurgence, and I think we're at this confluence of trends. Right, people want more snackable, on the go things, but they want healthier things. People want jerky, for example, but they also want to cut down on their meat Mm -hmm. consumption. So it kind of explains why we're suddenly seeing a lot more jerky-like products or jerky brands in the plant-based space launching. So tell me what the product is actually made from mm-hmm. uh, and how much of it is actual kelp versus kelp blended with other things that make it have the texture and taste that it has. Yep. So it's gone through a lot of different recipe formulations. I mean, we're still reformulating it, even though it's in market. We're making a big change next month, um, which I'll tell you about. But essentially, it's 70% kelp. What's really important to us in all of our products is that kelp is the first ingredient on the ingredient list. And for those that aren't in the food industry, the the way that that's regulated is it's by weight. So the most weighted uh, ingredients on the panel have to be listed first. So we always want kelp to be first. And the second ingredient is shiitake mushrooms. Mm. So there is a, a mushroom base, and then you have coconut aminos, apple cider vinegar, nutritional yeast, chickpea flour, and then a lot of the protein in it is from pea protein. And so what we saw in the jerky space was a lot of people eating um crave jerky like this softer jerky and then in the vegan space we saw people eating like just mushroom jerky or coconut jerky and i love both of those but neither have a high protein content and i think when people go to grab jerky they want protein and so we wanted to to have high protein but also be soy free because vegan jerky Mm. we're the only high protein vegan jerky on the market that's also soy free to date and so we wanted to fill that niche for people. Uh, and, I mean, you know, we came up with these three flavors, so they're all very different. You know, you have people who are hardcore advocates for each one and hate the others. And then you have people that are a little more generalist and like all three. Um, 
And I think, you know, when we've looked at like how this is going to react with other flavors, like the kelp does come through. Like we tried to make a mango habanero kelp jerky and it it doesn't really work. Mm. You have to kind of go a little bit on the more Asian-y side of the flavor profiles when you're introducing something like this to American consumers. Mm. And so who worked on the product formulation? Uh, you said you, you talked initially to a, to a friend who was working on a meat jerky. Yep. Uh, company was was he the one who initially formulated the product? And the reason I asked that is also because I know you you, d- you didn't have a background in food, yeah. so obviously this isn't something you could have done on your own. Although it's quite possible you could have. No, no, no. I I certainly helped with the ingredient mm-hmm. list, so I'm a real label turner, and uh, I'm sure a lot of other listeners mm-hmm. are too. And I think you know there were things for me that were just a no go. Um, for example, soy, you know, that that to me is just too much of it is in the vegan industry. So Will Horowitz is a chef in New York City, and he developed the first um, kelp jerky product. His restaurant's called Duck's Eatery. So he's a real meat guy. Uh, and this was a definitely departure from a lot of the more meaty things he was known for. And then uh, we worked with a food scientist named Andre, who like works with a lot of other food companies. And and he was great, and he really helped us with the flavorings. But it was my co-founder, Matt, who, like, major labor of love, has been making kelp jerky in the production facility, like, almost every week for the past year. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, there were a lot of people that helped kelp jerky to get it to where it is, but, like, he's been the, the true, like, workhorse on this. Yeah. <laughs> so now you have... A product, possibly. Like you've worked with someone who's been able to formulate something and you're like, I think we're onto something. We can we can do this. We can create a consumer market around kelp with the help of jerky. Jerky is going to be the delivery mechanism for this amazing food called kelp. Yep. Where do you go from there? Because, you know, developing a product or, you know, working on it in a test kitchen and then taking that up to launching an actual food company are two very, very different things. First kelp farm visit was April 2016. Mm -hmm. And we're now, what month is it? November 2019. So it's pretty quick. (laughs) That's not quick at all. I mean, I mean... (laughs) I guess I'm trying to tell this to readers when they're like, everything takes so much longer than you think it will. And granted, like, I, you know, I still console. I'm not paying myself with kelp jerky money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're also working during this time that you're trying to build a business because, you know, you're living in New York City and, you know, Blue Magic Smoothies at Juice Press are like $16. So, you know, you got to make it work. And I'm not going out to fancy dinners. I'm literally eating dinner at Juice Press, but it's still expensive. Um, So we had the little samples of the product, much like this new teriyaki flavor I'm showing you in this plastic bag. And we're walking into, you know, our first investor meeting. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but I can't remember. They're a big food investor group Mm. in New York City. And um, Lauren Jupiter, who's Excel Partners. Oh, okay. Lauren (laughs) Jupiter sits me down and she's nice as ever. Super excited with my enthusiasm, like like truly believes we can make it. And then she's like grilling me on the numbers because they're, you know, obviously they're investors. They care about numbers. I am a completely like marketer. Like I I love spreadsheets. I can build like like colorful spreadsheets that are more like to-do lists and stuff. And I like Trello and Airtable. But yeah, I can't make projections and formulas. Like I have a husband that's really good at that. And so he had helped me kind of like just, you know, hack together this, um, spreadsheet for our projections and it was clearly so off and I came out of that meeting being like shit I can't do this on my own and that night my co-founder Matt emailed me and said look 
um, or he, he cold emailed me on LinkedIn, which is so dorky. And he said, hey, I saw what you're doing. It's really cool. I'd love to come to a tasting. Um, by the way, I'm like a financial consultant and I'll just like work for free for you if you're up for it. So it was like angel sent from the heavens. And so we started working together, and that's when, like, kind of the more business elements of mm. the, you know, Akua came t- into being. We could go back out to investors with a much more, um, you know, kind of thought-out plan. Uh, I just started, um, at this point, this Facebook group called OMGCPG because I was like, oh, my God, like, what am I doing in this industry? And I just added all my friends who are food founders so I could ask questions, like, um, and we, you know, there were people that were really helpful and sent us their decks. And so we, we built a deck. And I think, you know, just having a deck, getting intros into investors. And we had a convertible debt note, mm. which meant that we could, just for other people, I know you know this, but we could collect money over a, uh, an extended period of time, which really helped. And so, you know, we, we raised about 500K in friends and family money. Um, by friends and family, I mean, like, mostly angel investors. My, mm-hmm. my parents dedicated some money to the Kickstarter that, that they call themselves investors for that. But <laughs> um, it, it was not like, you know, it got handed to me. And uh, then, you know, there's packaging. Mm-hmm. I will shout out um, Interact on Shelf is a is a marketing uh, design group in Boulder, and I met Blake, uh, the founder, at a summit event, and we were like smoking a joint outside this house, and he's like eating my kelp jerky, and he's like, "Wow, it's really good." You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know help you. I, I bring on startup clients, and I'm gonna you know do your do your design not for free, but you won't have to pay me until you launch, mm-hmm. which is you know huge like. Working capital is everything when you're building a business. So, um, so we worked with Interact, which is one of the top packaging design firms, and and had them help us. Um, and then we did a Kickstarter. So, mm. that was either like the best thing we've ever done or the worst thing we've ever done. Because like everything, I don't understand like how things. I, I always think things are going to go faster than they actually do. So I was like, we're launching the Kickstarter in March. We're going to deliver you kelp jerky in July. <laughs> this is three months. That's why I thought. That's why I said two years was a short amount of time, and and you're saying, well, it took too long because that's that's unreasonable. Um, And if anyone's heard prior episodes, uh, I. Nut Pods is an example of a of a Kickstarter started brand that then had the same problem. Is that, yeah, you had people now who have supported your Kickstarter, and you now have a new problem. You've got to deliver products. Oh my god! (laughs) And some of them are so mean. I have some great, I mean, one of them, when they got their kelp jerky after waiting for a year, told me it tasted like um, a school of fish swam by a shark and got scared and sharded on the bottom of the ocean floor. And then you scooped it up and you put that in a dehydrator and you shipped it to me. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> you should frame that up. I know. I love it. One day when kelp jerky <laughs> is the, everyone's eating it, then yeah. you, you can say, ha ha, look at that. We've exactly. come so far. Um so uh, started in Kickstarter, I think it obviously makes sense, prove that there's a market for it, get some initial funding, build some buzz. Uh, did you then go try to find a co-manufacturer? Was How hard was it to make this product? Because again, what I tasted, and, and your product is unique, there isn't anything like this. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, when I mentioned we've raised 500K, like a lot of companies have raised like tens if not hundreds of millions Mm -hmm. of dollars to create meat alternative products and we're not trying to make you think this is cow meat like you know it it definitely is kelp jerky it's what it says on the tin 
But I think, you know, we got really far with how much money we raised and the biggest costs that were sunk were into the co-man and the scaling from your food product in a kitchen to figuring out how to make it at scale. And that's what I thought we could figure out in three months and get our Kickstarter done. But like that wasn't my department. So I just figured the people I worked with could, you know, get it done in three months. And (laughs) I've now learned to be a much more reasonable CEO. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it took like almost so that was March. We went into the co-man when we launched the Kickstarter. Um, Then our co-man kicked us out. His name's Paul. He works in Industry City. I really like him. But yeah, he was like, this is too hard to make. And he was, the setup he had, he was turning over every single piece of kelp jerky to make sure it evenly dehydrated. So, like, this is where the Keebler elves really come in and you understand, like, how they made all those cookies. We had no (laughs) Keebler elves. Um, And so we moved to another co-man, a co-manufacturer in Connecticut which was run on 90% solar power. We loved it. But then they charged us, like, they kept moving our fees and, and really screwing us over. We couldn't keep our cogs under control because we just didn't know how much it cost to make the product with them. And then just two weeks ago, we moved our uh, manufacturing out to Ohio, and we were like, these guys are great. We, My co-founder finally found someone who was really smart and really cared about the product. They spent a week together training him. Matt comes back to New York with me, sitting down. He's looking at me like he's finally maybe let go of being on site for every production run of kelp jerky. And then he gets a call. And then he starts yelling and swearing, and he has, like, a major, like, short fuse. And I'm sitting there with Eve, who works with me in marketing, and I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) And Matt gets back, and I'm like, what? And he's like, the guy making our product thinks he's allergic to kelp. Oh, no. (laughs) This is a bad joke. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? Like, no one is allergic to kelp. And, yeah, he just broke out in hives, and he went to the hospital, and he's off. He got fired from the manufacturer, and so now my co-founder is going out to Ohio to make kelp jerky. <laughs> so the manufacturing piece is really hard. Yeah, well, it's it tends to be hard. I mean, I've never heard that story before about someone <laughs> being allergic to the product. But uh, wow, so so fascinating. I mean, yeah. T- so maybe maybe when you went into the world of food, you 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 were you, you were probably a little naive about how easy some of this was going to be. Um, but you know, you learn and I guess that's what this is all about. I mean, I think there's so many companies I've talked to, some have been in existence for five, 10 years who spent way more than two years trying to figure some of this stuff out. And, uh, some are still trying to figure it out. And it's, um, you know, it's the endless dance between, do you have any, do you have enough capital? Then are you able to manufacture? Then can you get distribution? And then if you get distribution, can you man- do you have the capacity right. to supply to them? So I guess it makes sense um, why you're focusing. And, you know, it's early stage for you. Yeah. Um, and you're going e-commerce first. Yeah. So tell me about that decision. And and was it driven by investors? Was it driven by... No. <laughs> you've got to build... Because I think part of your challenge and, and part of what makes your company and your product and your business exciting is you're you're building this entire brand you're you're building you're trying to tell a whole new story of kelp and because really there hasn't been a story of kelp been told before so you're doing it for the first time you can almost be that user interface into this world of kelp farming uh to bring up a tech uh analogy because i know you you would relate to that uh and that requires some smart thinking, building community, which you did at Summit, 
building, uh, you know, being good at marketing, branding, um, and kind of creating this lifestyle brand. Yeah. Uh, of course, on the backs of a really good product. So, so tell me about what you've done so far in e-commerce and how far along are you in the process and and yeah, where you plan to go next with this. Yeah. So when I was, you know, getting into this industry and I'd, I'd already committed, like we'd raise money, like we'd set up the company. Um, everyone was just kind of like, this is going to be really brutal and really hard and unify this and he mm. this and it sucks. And you see like there's this epic tweet storm. I think it's Ryan Caldbeck from Circle Up. And mm-hmm. he just listed all these reasons that these retailers just fuck CPG companies. And you're like, oh, my God. And then I talked to people like Zach Normandon from Dirty Lemon. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I love my life. <laughs> he's like, just don't sell into retailers and distribution until you let like Coke or Pepsi buy or River Bottom. He's like, just do D to C. You have full control over your data. You know, you, you know your customers. You can iterate on what they want. You can do kind of rapid product releases. And I already kind of knew that in my heart coming from technology. But I also like, you know, I don't live in one place. We don't have an office like my husband lives in South Africa and Europe. And so for me to be able to like have some sort of freedom to like not be physically based somewhere, we had we have to run the majority of this business online. And I've always been like I've never had an office. I've always been that coworker kid sitting with a laptop in a coffee shop. Um, And I, I love that flexibility. And I think building a business online gives you more of that. Um, I also believe that like we don't we stopped like sending, you know, when everyone and their mom is asking you for free product for their event. We actually stopped sending any free product for events where we don't have a physical presence because Mm -hmm. it is so new and weird and we have to explain it. And you have to tell the environmental story at the same time Mm -hmm. as the health benefit story. And so I think being online, you can really do that well. And so we invested, um, you know, you have such small marketing budgets when you first launched, but we didn't have a ton of money to spend on Facebook advertising. And so the, the sort of magic number to actually be able to know if Facebook advertising is, is working and test things, you have to spend about five grand a month. And we were nowhere near being able to spend that. So um, we put about maybe... $1,000 a month on what, you know, retargeting. So if someone came to our site, they would mm-hmm. be served an ad. But that was that was it. And then uh, we invested what budget we did have in content. So, you know, we did send influencer packs out, but we weren't just sending free product. We'd be like, you have to send us photos back. And we would have beautiful photo shoots on the beach. I went to Cape Town, South Africa for our first photo shoot where, you know, creating content is definitely more affordable. But also, like, all my friends aren't white in South Africa. So I had this, like, beautiful spread of people from, like, all different backgrounds in our advertisement, which I felt was super important from day one. I think a lot of food brands, especially in the health and wellness space, just have white people in their ads. And so it's only white people buying their products. And that was something that, like, from day one, I just wanted to, like, you know, be very different about. Um, Came back to L.A. We've done a whole photo shoot to kind of encapsulate that California lifestyle that, like, everybody around the world sort of idolizes. And we've let that be a big part of our brand narrative as well. Um, And then we've been fortunate and the world is just really waking up to like the climate crisis that's going on. So we were at like every March we were sampling at the U.N. You know, we've we've tried to be as part of those conversations as we possibly can. Um, 
And yeah, so that's kind of our online and offline strategy. Yeah. And so since when have you been selling the products online and for someone who's listening who wants to buy it, where can they buy it? Yeah. We launched Kelp Jerky on Earth Day this year, which was April 22nd. Uh, and you can buy it at akua, A-K-U-A dot C-O. So akua.co. <laughs> Okay. And do you also sell it in other places? Um, oh, yeah. So okay. um, we launched on Thrive Market. We love them. So on our website, the minimum you um, have to buy is three bags because, you know, it's just even though we charge consumers $5 for shipping, we're also paying to have the box packed, $2 a box. So it's just things add up. So selling one single bag doesn't make a lot of sense. It's also mm-hmm. not very environmentally like uh, conscious. So when you go to Thrive Market, though, or Milk Guys um, or Bubble, you can buy an individual bag of kelp jerky online. Okay, because it's part of a bigger order, I'm sure. So yeah, exactly. Okay. Makes sense. So um, now what do you want to do next with, uh, you know, I'm sure jerky is just the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, what would be even cooler? And I think I said this to you before we started recording. You could have a a seafood alternative that's actually made of the mm-hmm. seafood, except it's plant-based. Yeah. Uh, Sounds so, like it goes in the refrigerated section, though, so I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what if you could make a meat alternative that was just, you know, made of, of, of kelp? It was sustainable seafood. Yeah. It's, it is seafood, except it's not fish. So um, the guy I told you about who created kelp jerky with us, he uh, created some kelp burgers. They had gluten in them, though, but they mm-hmm. were really, really good. So that's coming. Oh, there's a Dutch burger in Amsterdam, apparently, made of seaweed. Um, I've heard it's not that good, but I might just, like, go check it out. Uh, We definitely, when we first launched the business, wanted to create a meat alternative company. Um, Again, this was sort of when, like, Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger were everywhere. When we looked into what it would be like to launch three products in a row, one's dried, one's refrigerated, and one's frozen, it's just that's a great way to go out of business. Mm -hmm. So we've stayed in the dried shelf-stable category. Um, So kelp jerky, obviously first product. Um, We're going to be developing new flavors. So it's looking like teriyaki is probably going to be our next one. Um, We're also going to be doing the spicy chili and lime, which is so good. And then... um, we're going to be taking out the organic maple sugar from the recipe. And sugar is really important for dehydration to maintain moisture. And we're going to be using apricot instead. That way we can say zero added sugar to the product. Mm. little loophole there. Should I tell you about future products we have coming? Yeah, yeah okay. sure, sure. So mm, what day is it today? It's Thursday. <laughs> when you work weekends, it's like, I don't know what day it is. But um, we are launching a very simple kelp pasta on our website next week. So it's not like the bonza made from kelp, although I really want to do that. <laughs> and I was like, I need to pitch Brian Rudolph on it soon. He's the founder of Bonza. Mm-hmm. But um, we have these beautiful kelp noodles that have been dehydrated and they're they're just um, we, we kind of press them into like a, a ball or a heart shape and put them in a bag. It's a super simple product. But you take it and you rehydrate it in a bowl of water for five minutes and you literally are like eating fresh kelp out of the sea. And it's somewhere between like a, a kale and a pasta. I call mm-hmm. it algae dente. <laughs> um, and it's really, really good. It's super simple. We'll just do that on e And then we have a couple other products coming for Expo next year. 
Yeah. And so you definitely, you know, that's the beauty of e-commerce, right? You can test out new products. You can, you can, you'll have real numbers and all of it. You can assess which is working better than the others. Um, and what have you learned so far from, I mean, it's only been a few months since the jerky has been available online. Who is your typical customer and um, like who are your super fans and why do they love the product and the brand? Yeah. Uh, our typical customer is a woman. Um, so I'm going to say she. <laughs> she loves the brand because she can't find another type of plant-based protein source that she likes so much. Um, people are really into the idea of eating sea greens in this way. It's people that are already aware of the health benefits of sea greens. There's just really no good way to get them today. Um, eating nori sheets doesn't count. Like those are kind of roasted and salted and they're delicious, but they're not necessarily healthy for you. Um, we have surprisingly like just as many vegans as meat eaters that come to our site. So I think it's more like this omnivore attraction to eating seaweed in this form. Um, I would say the vegans are very vocal. Like that's a that's a very vocal segment of our audience on Instagram. And, like, I remember we posted, I don't know, like, a lobster photo once on Instagram, and we had people freaking out. And I was like, shoot, forgot that that's not vegan. I love lobster. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's – and then also the other thing that was surprising is um, just age-wise, we're getting um, people who are either children – so they're new enough to the food world and they have parents who've been feeding them healthy food that they haven't been like ruined by American kind of food habits. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a lot of baby boomers that love kelp jerky because they're aware of how difficult it is to get the trace minerals in every day. So every bag of kelp jerky has like it's really high in vitamin D and calcium. It has 70 percent of your daily iron in one bag, which for a vegan is huge. Um, it's high in potassium, vitamin A. Vitamin E, it has over 100% of your B2, really high in B1, magnesium, zinc, and then really high also in omega-3s and vitamin K. So it's just a powerhouse. Um, and it's like with soil depletion and you're not getting the nutrients from your vegetables anymore. I think more and more people are aware of that. But the minerals in the ocean are still there because they come down from the mountains mm -hmm. during rain and go into the rivers and then into the ocean. So and then into our kelp. So you're about over two years into this uh, exciting project and journey with uh, Akua. Um, at this stage, I mean, it's too late to turn back now. You're, you're, you're moving forward. This is happening. Um, what inspires you at this stage to keep pushing forward and building the next phase of, of what you're going to do? Because, of course, you've just raised um, a small round. You've, you've launched online. It's only been a few months. You already have new products in the pipeline. There's probably a lot more you can do with with kelp as an ingredient and other sea greens possibly as well. Uh, when you wake up now, what is your biggest priority and, and what's driving you to push forward with this project two years into it? Yeah. Um, so I just, it's probably not very inspiring, but I do want to say that there are certainly days I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, is it too late to turn around? This is really, really hard. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I think for anyone that feels that, it's totally normal. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of easy ways right now to make money. Like, why didn't I start a CBD company? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's just we're, what we're doing is so new and different. Um, I'm a very gut person. So I make all my decisions based on feelings. So I don't have a great answer in terms of like what like goes through my head but what mm-hmm. goes through my heart is just like I've never felt and I've, I've worked so many different kinds of jobs and worn so many different kinds of hats and I'm one of those people that loves having five jobs at once and and learns by doing that really rapidly but I've never latched onto one thing that I really felt like oh man I want to dedicate my life to this every day I love it um and I think it's just because I I've seen what firsthand like what the effects are of generations of eating crap and not caring about our planet and if we can do those two things like give people actually healthy food that's easy for them to eat and and really help our planet at the same time like what else was i put on this earth to do yeah that one that's a great answer and i also appreciate the honesty because it is uh it's easy to make uh entrepreneurship at whatever level just sound like this fun, exciting, yeah. glamorous thing, which... Fucking crushing it, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, All the time. Yeah, Every day, so running easy. downhill. Uh, it's raining kelp money right now. So, <laughs> um, so it's exciting. I mean, I think you're, you're at a very interesting time in the food industry also. So the timing is great. The, the space is good. The the fact that you are actually able to to help support this whole kind of farming that needs to be encouraged in the U.S. that could be this um, economic benefit for for people who are basically going to have no jobs down the line when when there's no fish in the ocean. This could really be a supplemental way for them to make an income, and also it'll help us develop. Uh, figure out new ways to produce food that aren't so resource intensive. Yeah. Again, this is a zero input product. I mean, maybe not the jerky in the end product, yep. but the kelp, which is seventy percent of it, is zero input. I mean, I I don't think of any other product in the market that can even say that. So, on top of that, you have the health benefits, and and of course, I think you're building a really cool looking brand. And um, have you met Taro the otter? This is our mascot. Oh, really? I didn't notice that at the back of the package. <laughs> One of our investors named Taro told us he would uh, he would appreciate us naming the mascot after him. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Taro from... Uh, from Four Sigmatic. Okay. <laughs> right. So what's your, your vision for the company? What do you want Akua to be? Um, yeah, what's your longer-term plan with this business? I want it to be a household name for Sea Greens-based food products, so... I grew up with the bunny rabbit from Annie's. And so that's kind of what I think about with Tarot the Otter. Um, I want kids to be eating kelp. I want, like, you know, us to kind of understand that, like, the algae kingdom, which, like the fungi kingdom, is completely separate from plant and animal, has so much potential to feed us in all these beautiful ways. Um, And I think that, you know, when I look at our ability to to succeed so much of it is tied into the R&D um which has been just on our team right now and so i i am sort of courting the idea of partnering with a big R&D firm they're private they're not related to like a big food company um but to help us like really scale this mission quickly um 
Because if we can have like the kelp bonza style pasta <laughs> and kelp crackers and kelp flatbreads, and if we can build out to our B2B business where we're, you know, bringing kelp into restaurants and, you know, as ingredients in other people's products, like that is so exciting because then this whole industry that's based here in the U.S. grows and gives these coastal economies like some real hope and this totally new form of what they call a blue-green economy. Hmm. And and what is your sort of longer-term vision for our food system? I close out every podcast with this question. It kind of comes from this idea that we are about 7.5 or 6 billion people on the planet today. And by all scientific estimates, we are in a race against time because of a growing population and at the rate at which we are destroying our natural resources and contributing to climate change and and the destruction of our oceans as well because of it. But we have to try to work on a solution. And I think companies like yours and, and several others who are working to fix this broken food system and redefine it are playing their own little roles in this this bigger effort to change the trajectory we are on right now and set us down a path where we will hopefully be able to feed the world in a sustainable way when we are 10 billion people in 2050. What does that food system look like for you if you get it, rather, if I always correct myself, when we get it right, what does that look like for you? Paint a picture of what the food system will be in 2050, when you succeed and when others like you succeed. So 2050, what year is it now? It's 20, it's almost 2020. 2020. Wow. <laughs> 30 years? Mm-hmm. So I'll be 65. I'm going to be living so far away from any other human when I'm 65. I'm going to be in a little <laughs> hut on the beach eating scallops with my bare toes. Like, <laughs> it's going to be the apocalypse. It's going to be bad. Um, I... <laughs> Unless consumers stop buying crap and stop eating meat every day, like, I I don't know if any of us want to live in 2050. So I don't even want to, I don't care what grocery stores look like. It's going to be like, you know, the zombie apocalypse. But the best case scenario. (laughs) Best case scenario. utopian vision. That's if we don't do anything. (laughs) Right, right. Best case scenario. Um, So... Uh, this woman, Christiana Musk, who's who's married to Kimball Musk, yeah. gave this amazing talk, and she'd be great on your podcast, on the future of protein and, like, all these different viewpoints on protein. And I think protein is such an interesting subsect of the, the general kind of food landscape because we need protein. Uh, I also think we really need fiber. But, um, you know— one option is that we have this, you know, these huge, very mechanized, high-tech kind of animal agriculture situations. Um, two is like the the petri dish grown meat. Um, so people are still eating meat. And then there's kind of like the fake meat. And then there's like the vegans. And it was so clearly elucidated to me that these were sort of like the four mm-hmm. ways forward. And, and there's maybe more, but those are the four I remember. Um and so when I think about, like, where I would want the future of the food system to go, um, do I think we should be all eating fake meat? I mean, we talked about that, you know, like eating all this, like, Satan and tons of soy-based stuff. Like, it doesn't make us feel good. And um, I really believe in eating for your blood type. I'm A negative, which means that I'm really great on a plant-based diet. But I've seen what people with O's look like when they haven't gotten their meat. It's really bad. And so I believe that there are some people that really need meat. I love the Petri dish grown system. I think that's really cool. I think that you're not 
killing life. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a, a very interesting path forward for people. But still, even with that, I think it needs to be eating less. I was having dinner with these like 75-year-olds the other day. It was amazing. And they were telling me how they never bought meat in a grocery store until they were adults. And this is like upstate New York. And their parents would go out and or someone in the community would hunt meat. And then maybe once a month, because they weren't very wealthy, they would have meat together. And it was this beautiful, very like family bonding moment of this almost like sacrificial kind of thinking around this animal. And I just think like this deep respect for food, whether it's meat or vegetables, has just completely been lost. Mm. And I want to get back to that and just this respect. Um, And then you take it one step further and it's just this having people have this deep respect for the planet and understanding that like we are an organism that's part of Earth, (laughs) not separate. Yeah. Well, uh, that is a perfect way to end this. I uh, really appreciate the time today, Courtney, and uh, excited to try your your products, and I can't wait to see what's next. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.